Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. This is the reading of God's holy and errant word. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through these, those regions and had given much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Gaius of Darby and Timothy, and the agents Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intended, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. All right. God is good? All the time? All right. Let's keep the energy level high. All right. I want to welcome all those who are watching from home. Uh, we don't have... Uh, too long, too much longer with live streams, so uh, I'm glad you can still tune in. And, um, you know, today we have our youth members as well as communion, so I, I, I did my best to keep the message, uh, you know, to a reasonable time. Uh, but today's, today's message, I, I noticed the, um, the slide had one word missing, so let me <laughs> clarify what the title is. Today's title is Paul's Farewell Tour and the Death of Young Eutychus. And I have a two-part outline for us today, okay? Part one, the need for Christian encouragement. And part two, how God encourages us through the story of Eutychus. All right, so let's get right into it. Part one, the need for Christian encouragement. Uh, prior to my family moving to Northern Virginia... I had, that must be Olivia, I had served a young church in Philly for eight years. And as you can imagine, over the course of those eight years, significant relationships were formed, which God used to profoundly shape the person and pastor I am today. So when I knew that my time there was coming to an end, the mood became somewhat somber, right? The last couple of weeks were basically set aside to offer my final farewells to the staff, 
uh, to my youth students and to the families I've grown to love. And as a result, many tears were shed in the process. So even though we all knew that God was in control and that he was leading the way, right, to say our final goodbyes was extremely difficult. And it wouldn't be wrong to say that many of my youth students, including myself, were very disheartened by what was happening. And so what we needed the most at that time was encouragement. But not just any kind of encouragement. We needed genuine Christian encouragement. And that's what I first wanted to address this morning, because that's basically where we find Paul in our story today. Of course, for Paul, uh, he's in a much uh, dire situation. Things are worse for him since, you know, look at what's happening. He's, he's not just moving from, from one place to another. He's moving from one place to another, knowing that his next move will likely lead to his death. That is the context he is in right now. And that's why the mood throughout these next few chapters is pretty somber, you'll notice. Right? The walls are literally closing in on Paul, and he and everyone around him knows that there's a big target on his back and that his death is near. And so the mood is somber. And the primary focus of Paul is to encourage his fellow Christian brothers and sisters one last time. Let me give you a better idea of what the mood was like during that time through the actual words of this chapter. Uh, verse 22, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Right, Jerusalem was the essential hub where all the angry Jews were, they're waiting for him. They're waiting for Paul to return. Uh, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, Paul says, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so Paul knows something bad is about to happen to him. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of, you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul knows that this is the last time he will be with the people he's speaking to. And then verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Much tears are being shed. And let me share one more passage. This is in the next chapter, chapter 21, verse 10 and following. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, I want you to think about the imagery here. He took Paul's belt. He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man, meaning Paul, who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we and the people were there urged Paul not to go. Don't go, Paul. Right? This, if this is going to happen, don't go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answers them, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus was his response. How amazing is that? Paul is such a spiritual giant in my eyes. This is why my parents named me after this character. 
The Apostle Paul's affection for God's people and the Apostle Paul's faith in the Lord here is inspiring, is it not? Because he knows what is about to happen to him, he's treating each of these visits as they are his very last. And he is doing whatever he can to encourage the believers to persevere in the faith along with him. Notice how the chapter opens up. Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So wherever he's going, right, his focus is to encourage the believers here and, the, and believers there. And it's wherever he travels, encouragement is on his mind. He wants to encourage them. This is something to really consider. And I wanted to pause here because, you know, sometimes the way in which we think about encouragement can become easily distorted. Why? Well, because of our tendencies to simply want others to come alongside of us and essentially give us an ego boost, right? That, that's our conception of encouragement. We want people to just come to us and, and tell us how awesome we are. We want our egos to be boosted, to be elevated, and we're taught to think like this from a very early age. You know, as you know, I, I have uh, a good number of kids, and, um, you know, my, my kids, they, they like their shows. Okay? So when they were young, we would often watch, unfortunately, not, not much was offered even now, even back then, but Blue's Clues, right? You guys know, Blue's Clues, Blue's Clues. Because when we use our minds and take a step at a time, we can do anything that we want to do, right? You, you listen to that 100 plus times, see what happens to your heart and mind. <laughs> not, even, not even joking. I mean, but this is how the world teaches us what encouragement is, right? You can do whatever you put your mind to is what we all want to hear. I believe in you. You are awesome. Let's go. <laughs> On the other hand, when you say anything that minimizes someone's value, you are thought to be such a discouragement. But is that the right way to be thinking, or is that the fruit of modern-day secular psychology that seeks to simply elevate our egos, thinking that is the cure for our ills? I want you to contrast <clears throat> what's so popular in our day with what Paul writes here, and, and see if what Paul writes sounds encouraging to you at all, okay? If, if what Paul writes here is encouraging to you, maybe there's still hope for us, okay? But if what Paul writes here sounds very discouraging, then we're really in trouble, okay? Acts chapter 20, verse 24, this is how he thinks of life and how he views himself and, and others as well. But I do not account my life of any value 
nor as precious to myself. You catch that? I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He thinks very differently from the way we tend to think in our day. Philippians chapter 2, try this on. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When's the last time you actually did that? Or how about this one? 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles. Really? That's what he I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And so how great am I? No, it's not that. It's though it was, it was not I, it wasn't me, but the grace of God that is with me. So notice his obsession is not over himself. It's, he is obsessed over making God look great. Secular psychologists would say that the Apostle Paul suffered from low self-esteem, right? But that's because they don't understand that we as people are not called to esteem ourselves. God and his grace is what we are called to esteem in this life. This is not just true for the believers, it's true for the unbeliever as well. They just don't know it yet. We are called to esteem God and his grace. Amen? He is our source of comfort and strength, and our hearts are most satisfied when we exalt him over all things. Not when we exalt ourselves. When we just go around exalting ourselves, what does that make us? It just makes us very ill, spiritually diseased. I like how John Piper put it many years ago. I think these words are still extremely relevant in our day. He wrote once, nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Because on the edge of the Grand Canyon, as you feel your soul being drawn out into this vast opening, that's not what happens. What happens is wonder and awe, which is what you were made for. You know, we think that the solution is, if I could just feel better about me, better about the way I look, better about my height, better about my weight, my complexion, my hair, my mathematical ability, if I could just feel better about me, that I would be healed. But you wouldn't. You wouldn't be healed because you were made to see God. You were made to love God and delight in God and be stunned by God. And so he writes, I'm not on a mission to help you feel good about yourselves. I'm on a mission to help you feel so good about the greatness of God that you would forget about yourselves. So brothers and sisters, we do not believe in self-esteem as it is being promoted by our self-obsessed culture today. We believe that the cure to our self-obsession is in esteeming the Lord and his grace above all things. Amen? 
That is why Paul was able to write the way he did. That is how he sought to encourage his fellow believers as the walls were slowly closing in on him. I do not account my life of any value, he wrote. If only I may finish my course and testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So brothers and sisters, let's aspire to live in this way, that we would not become so preoccupied with making much of ourselves. May our obsession be in wanting to make much of God. Part two, how God encourages us through the story of Eutychus. For those of you who may have never heard of Eutychus, you can think of Eutychus as someone who was part of the youth group in the early church. Really, right? So our youth members here should be able to relate to him fairly well. He was a, a young teenager who did his very best to stay awake during one very late night service, only to fall to his death from the third story. Right? It was, it's not a coincidence that his name literally means lucky or fortunate because he was lucky to have God bring him back to life through the hands of the Apostle Paul. Right? Some of you, you know, very, I guess, uh, goody two-shoe Christians uh, may be thinking, I, I thought that we don't believe in luck, right? <laughs> since God is a sovereign God and he ordains all things, which is true, okay? But in this context, you can, you can take luck to mean blessed, okay? Uh, such as receiving something that is undeserved, okay? So in that sense, Eutychus was lucky, and if that word still bothers you, then you can just consider him blessed. Eutychus was Blessed. I have to admit that, you know, when the story is read in isolation, disconnected with the broader context of Paul's missionary journeys, it could sound pretty comical, right, to us, to anyone. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard many people just comment on this, how silly this story is, you know, uh, how clumsy of, of young Eutychus to fall from the third floor and, and basically break his neck and die. I mean, this is what happens to disinterested teenagers who fall asleep during service. Ha, 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 become the joke, you know, uh, to many people. Or even to pa pastors, like, oh, this is an example of why pastors shouldn't be preaching for so long, you know? They, they use it, you know, to kind of make that point. And it becomes a joke. But no, I want to say no this morning. I believe that is, that's the wrong way to read this story, when we keep in mind that Paul's death is near and the mood is rather somber because the church is soon going to experience greater persecution, you know, first by the Jews and then by Rome, that's the context again. If you keep that in mind, I believe the story was meant to serve as a much needed visual reminder to all of the believers. I mean, think about it. They heard Eutychus Thump. They, they, they heard him hit the ground and die. And, and this story would have served as a powerful reminder to them as they were worried about their future 
that the resurrection is real and that Christians really have nothing to ultimately fear in this life. There are also several details in this story that should help you see that Eutychus was actually no clumsy or disinterested teenager. He was rather uh, a teenager who was eager, very eager to hear God's word. I mean, first of all, he didn't have to be there. This is, one, this is not a mandatory meeting, you know. After dinner, he could have just left and, and went home, probably with the other teenagers who, who bolted off. But he, he chose to remain there because he knew that this was the last time he'd be able to see and hear from the Apostle Paul. And he wanted to be there. He didn't want to miss anything. Let me offer a, a contrasting example. Right? Uh, you may know someone like this, but th- this is... This is a real example. Look, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating this at all. Many, many years ago, I'm, I'm thinking it was like 2009 or 10 when I first got here, the first few couple years, uh, there was a college student, probably 18, 19 years old, sitting right there. Every Sunday, he would come, you know, for a season, right? I think for about like seven, eight months, he was with us, right? And during praise time, and back then, we sang like three, four songs, okay? It was, it was a smaller group, younger crowd, you know, a lot more electric and bass and drums, okay? Um, and, and he would go, he would be like going all out, right? Some of you may think that uh, Pastor Andrew is a bit too charismatic for you. No, no, he's nothing. He's nothing compared to this brother over here. Right, this brother was like dancing around and, you know, flailing his arms all around, going all out. And then the sermon would begin, Okay? And I didn't, I, I, didn't, I didn't preach that long. I preached longer now than I did, I did back then, you know. Five minutes into the sermon, you see him do this. Ten minutes into the sermon, right? He'd be like, oh, like, no joke, you can ask Pastor David, right? He was there. He witnessed it all. Um, you know, some people are very subtle about sleeping during service. Okay, you don't think I see you? Uh, I know who you are. Some of you just like, just kind of close your eyes as if you're meditating upon the word, looking very holy. I understand though, you know, work's tiring. I get that. I, I've been there too, you know. I, I, I confess I've slept during service uh, a, a few times. You're tired, you know. It's okay to take a nap. Take a brief nap, okay? But once you hear my voice sort of elevating, you know, that's when you know the climax is coming. You gotta, you know, wake up and, and listen, okay? Right. But this brother here, right, he slept with no sense of guilt or shame, right? Just, just 10 minutes into the sermon. Right? You can't do that, right? I mean, that's evidence that you really have no hunger for the Lord, right? This is just all an act, My point is that that is not the kind of young man Eutychus was. Okay, look at what verse 7 says. Let me highlight a few things. On the first day of the week, so this was a Sunday, right? So many people look at this and say, look, this is evidence that Christians gathered on a Sunday, right? When we're gathered together to break bread, so they were going to break bread. They were were going to basically do communion uh, soon after the the message was given. So I think... um, 
It's safe to assume that uh, they had dinner, and then there was going to be a, a message given by the Apostle Paul, and then communion would follow after that. But look, it says that Paul talked with them, and he intended to depart the next day, and so he decided to prolong his speech until midnight, okay? And so look, if they had dinner, Paul's message maybe would have started anywhere between 7 p.m. and 9 p.m., okay? Um, and so what's happening here is this. Paul was giving, at minimum, a three-hour message, <laughs> And I'm guessing it probably was longer than that. He just he kept on talking because it, it, he only had just a few more hours with them. I want to ask you this. Who among you wouldn't feel like just keeling over? Right? I confess I, I, I don't do very well after 9 p.m. these days. I would have struggled greatly trying to stay, you know, stay awake. Not because Paul's message is boring, but simply because it was late at night. Right? And most of us just don't have the mental bandwidth to listen to a three-hour message. Here's something I learned last week from Pastor Sam. Uh, after he you know, learned that I was speaking on Eutychus this Sunday, he mentioned, did you know that there is a book out there titled Saving Eutychus? I was like, what? I thought to myself. And so I looked it up on Amazon, and, and lo and behold, it's there. It's titled Saving Eutychus. How to preach God's word and keep people awake. <laughs> I'm like, what? What is that? They're taking this completely out of context. And I'm not endorsing the book, by the way, okay? I'm actually using this as an example of how not to think of this story. You know, the title here implies that Eutychus fell asleep because there was something wrong with the Apostle Paul's preaching. But that's not true. Luke, who is the author of Acts here, tells us that there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and that young Eutychus was sitting at the window. So what we're to think is this, this was a crowded room, right? The floor space was occupied either by people or by lamps. And so the only space available for this young teenager, Eutychus, was by the window. Like all the adults sort of took the best spots, right? And the young guy had to go sit at the window, right? And so also I'm thinking, um, if I'm a young, young teenager, I don't like, you know, being squished between people where also there are lamps. There's the, the heat coming from the lamps and the heat coming from people. I think that would be a bad recipe. I think I'd, I'd probably doze off more easily. So I'm, I'm going to go to the, the cooler spot in the room by the window. That, that could have been the case as well. And so when I think of Eutychus, what comes to mind are youth students on the last day of a retreat, right? We've all been there. After being sleep deprived for a few days, because you're all like, you know, excited, eat kablamyan, you know, <laughs> late at night. You stay up kind of fooling around with your friends, and then you, you struggle to stay awake on the last evening because the preacher is going longer than usual. At the retreats I used to serve at, you know, when students' eyelids would get too heavy, they were encouraged to get out of their seats and stand in the back of the room to keep themselves awake. We thought that was a smart policy 
that would help them. You know, because how many times have you actually seen someone sleep while standing up, right? Is that even possible? I think that's humanly impossible. I thought it was impossible to actually sleep with your eyes open, but I, I, had, I, had, I had a high school friend who learned the art of doing that, and so he would, <laughs> he would sleep in class. But, but I still have not ever met someone who was able to sleep standing up. My point is that Eutychus was a young but very noble teenager who was doing his very best to stay awake because he understood the gravity of the moment. But even Eutychus, who had good intentions and who possessed a noble heart, he failed, right? He failed to stay awake. So before I close the message, I I wanted to simply make two points that I hope will help all of us love our Savior more. Okay, I'll be quick about these. Number one, Eutychus represents all of us who are weak and unable to stay alert even during the most urgent of times. Right? Think about that. Eutychus represents all of us who are essentially weak. Yes, we're on the spectrum of godliness. Some are godlier than others, but ultimately we are all weak and we're unable to stay alert even during the most urgent of times. The story of Paul and Eutychus reminded me of when Jesus was with his disciples at Gethsemane right before Jesus was going to be arrested and sentenced to death. Do you remember that story? Um, It says that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled, and so he asked Peter, James, and John to stay awake and pray But every time he would come back to check up on them, he found them sleeping. And Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Peter, what are you doing? Are you sleeping? Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, was Jesus' word to his disciples. And yes, Eutychus was a godly teenager, but his flesh was also weak, just like our flesh is weak. So this story reminds us of our weakness before God. But secondly, and more importantly, the story of Eutychus reminds us that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Look at what it says in verse 10. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And then (laughs) they broke bread, and Paul kept speaking until daybreak, right? That to me is crazy too. I mean, he he had such stamina. He just went on to the morning. But everyone was comforted that Eutychus was given such grace to stay alive. But think about it. This, this is one of the very last memories they had of Paul, right? It was the memory of him bending over young Eutychus and taking him in his arms and saying, he's breathing, he's, he's gonna be all right, he's breathing, he's, he's alive, praise the Lord. You know, so many people have asked me, or not, not 
only me, but many people have asked throughout history, why in the world did God allow Eutychus to fall and die? And I believe God did so for the same reason the man in John 9 was born blind. In John 9, it says, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, was Jesus' answer. And in the same way, I believe Eutychus, this lucky and fortunate, blessed man, died so that the works of God might be powerfully displayed through him and that the early Christians, in the midst of their increased trials and hardships, would be encouraged by God's presence in their lives. It was a powerful visual reminder to them that God was with them. So, brothers and sisters, may God use this story to speak into your lives as well when you grow in your disappointments in other people, maybe even in church leaders for their moral failings. When you grow discouraged because of your own mistakes, perhaps, your own personal shortcomings, when you're tempted to simply give up on what is good and true because life is so tiring, remember that you are to ultimately find encouragement not in who you are, right? not in who I am or anyone is, not in any of our own accomplishments, but in who Jesus is and in what he has done for you. Amen? Just as Paul bent down to cover and embrace young Eutychus, remember that it was Jesus who bent down to embrace you in order to give you new life and to claim you as his own. Eutychus was lucky not because he died, but because God showed him grace, a grace that he did not deserve to receive, and he lived again, and so it is with you and me. Right? You are lucky, you are blessed, because you have received the grace of God, and so be encouraged, and no matter what hardships you may be facing today, or tomorrow, continue to walk in him, knowing that he is your ultimate comfort, your ultimate source of hope and joy and strength. I close with these final words. Someone said this, if you wish to be disappointed, look at others. If you wish to be disheartened, look at yourself. If you wish to be encouraged, where do you look? You look to Jesus because God is the God of all comfort and hope. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we confess that life is often difficult and even overwhelming at times. And we confess that we are weak, much like Eutychus, and unable to properly handle the pressures we face day by day. Lord, we need your encouragement as we continue on in this journey. So as you have done for Paul in our story today, would you provide us with godly travel companions whom we could be encouraged by as we share in the burdens of life together. And may we find encouragement not by elevating or esteeming ourselves in the midst of our earthly trials, but by esteeming Christ and his grace, which is meant to be sufficient for us in our weakness. And perhaps most importantly, may you encourage us 
through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who testifies of Jesus in our hearts and daily reminds us of the resurrection life which we have received according to the riches of your grace. Lord, as you now have nourished us by your spoken word, may you also nourish us to the visible display of the gospel as we shift our eyes to your table. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor Jacob will come up now and administer the communion for us.